Welcome back to Activity Quest, the podcast that is jam-packed with stuff to do. Now, in this week's episode, we're going rugby crazy at Twickenham Stadium. Dan's there, and he's touring around the place and the museum. Plus, we're getting super fancy and dabbling in some fashion. And we're going to be chatting to some very important people from the National Trust. They're telling us all about the National Trust's brand new children's house. My name is Bex, and every episode of Activity Quest starts with a fun kids presenter doing something awesome. All right then, Dan, where are you today? Hello, today I'm in south-west London at the home of English rugby, Twickenham Stadium. I'm going to have a look round, have a stadium tour, get as close as I can to the pitch, maybe go to where the Royals would sit to watch a game. I've brought with me producer Paul, a man of few words. Paul, shall we go in? Yeah. I'm very excited. Let's get going. Feels very strange here in a massive stadium. Thousands of people can be here and it's completely empty and you you feel like you should whisper and I can't really figure out why. The home of English rugby, this massive British stadium with no one in it. Producer Paul and I have just sat in the most luxurious, most exclusive seats in the whole of Twickenham Stadium, in the President's Suite where honoured guests, where royalty and where our very own king sits. Paul, what did you make of the stunning view over the home of English rugby? Oh, it was, it was uh, incredible. The thing with this tour is you do get to go to places that no one ever gets to go. We've been invited in and now we're going to see the place where the players get ready before they head out onto the pitch. So, Reese, our tour guide, you've taken us into the dressing room. This is where the players get ready. They get into their kit right before they step outside. Just, just describe to us how new it is, how modern it is, how it's been built for the coach to see into the eyes of all the players. It was designed in 2015 for the, the second World Cup here. And uh, Stuart Lancaster decided to make this shape so that you could see, the coach could see all the players so he could look into their eyes and talk about what they were going to do. But more importantly, that they could also see him. And that is when the team becomes the team, when you can all see each other. And that's exactly what the psychology about this is. It's not being separate, it's being together. So, Reese, you're a tour guide here at Twickenham Stadium. It must be an incredible job, especially on a lovely sunny day. Uh, we started off walking into a completely empty, stunning uh, arena, the only purpose-built rugby stadium, you said, in, in the world, which seats over 80,000 people. Just tell us how it came to be here today. How old is this stadium? The stadium was first built here in, it was conceived in 1907 by the RFU. A gentleman called Billy Williams came and found this plot in Twickenham, bought it for £5,572.12 and sixpence. And then the stadium itself was built uh, for the first game, Richmond versus Harlequins in 1909. And today it's, I mean, it's the home of English rugby. It's where the English rugby team have their home games. We've had seen World Cups here. You've done this tour many times now over the last year or so. Still, what's your favourite moment of the tour? What sends shivers up your spine as a rugby fan? When I walk out through the tunnel. When you walk out through the tunnel, you just imagine there with 82,000 people shouting your name or shouting the team's name. And it sends shills down my, my spine every time. Absolutely every time. Fantastic. 
Thank you so much to Reese for showing us around the stadium. I loved seeing the tunnel where the players walked out, being part of history, all these amazing rugby players that have played for their country, stepping foot on the grass from where I walked. I loved it. Now I'm off to the museum to find out more about the history of rugby. And with Dr. Lydia Furs, we're in the museum just off the back of the stadium tour. We've had a stunning walk around Twickenham. It's a lovely day. Now we're inside. Dr. Lydia, just tell us about this museum and more of the history of what it's, why it's here and what it's telling us. So we're the World Rugby Museum and the museum tells the story of rugby from those very early days all the way through to the game at the moment with the Rugby World Cup for the women in New Zealand and next year um, in France for the men. I was looking that rugby is actually an older official sport than association football, soccer. This was because William Webb Ellis in rugby one day in I think 1823 decided to pick up the ball. Just tell us more about his story. So in 1823, there were games called football being played all around the world, but particularly in England and at private boys' schools. But the game as football was played at rugby school was known as rugby football. And the boys there uh, played a particular version that did include handling the ball. It wasn't usual to run with the ball. And a inquiry was put into how the rules of rugby developed and people decided that a character called William Webb Ellis, who was a real student who went to the school, might have started that tradition of running with the ball. There's very little evidence that he really did it, but everybody loves the story. And we love the story of William Webb Ellis being a bit of a rebel because the game really was decided by the students. It wasn't governed by the teachers. The headmaster kind of allowed the students to have their freedom and do this because else they were rioting in the schools. You know, it was a very strict school environment. And we're here in in an exhibition part of the museum, which is devoted to the Women's Rugby World Cup. And there's the names of some incredible players. I know you are one of them. Uh, and, and we've got a, a jersey. We've got the whole history of it right the way through from New Zealand, uh, where it currently is. Just just tell us more um, about how big the, the women's side of the game is now. I don't want to bring it back to soccer, but the Lionesses won in the football over the summer. Uh, how much have you seen a real uh, a boost in, in all forms of the women's game over the last couple of years? Yeah, there's a really exciting growth in women's sport in the UK right now, and it's a really great time to get into the game. Um, so women's rugby, the World Cup started in 1991, which is only just over 30 years ago, which might seem a really long time to some people, but it's actually a a really short time in the long history of rugby um, so it's really exciting to be seeing how much it's changed since those very first tournaments where people didn't really want women to be playing rugby um, and people were quite rude about the players sometimes in the newspapers and now we're seeing that changing and there's a lot a lot of support for the players who are out in New Zealand at the moment and the England team who are playing have gone in to this tournament as the number one in the world um, So it's a really exciting time to be following. Thanks, Lydia. It's been so great to speak to you. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how the England women do in the Rugby World Cup. I've had a great time here at Twickenham learning all about the rugby. If you're interested in coming along too, get to worldrugbymuseum.com. Back to you, Bex. Thanks, Dan. You can find out more about Twickenham Rugby Stadium and Museum by searching Twickenham Stadium. 
Using the Activity Quest magic teleportation device, we've moved Dan from the safety of Twickenham Stadium and taken him up north to the National Trust Children's House. Dan? This week on Activity Quest, we're learning about a brand new, huge, old... But new, fantastical house. It's being opened especially for you as well. It's the Children's Country House. It's at Sudbury Hall, which is in Derbyshire. And Jodie Lees from the National Trust joins us to talk through more. Jodie, thank you for being there. Thank you for having me. So I said it was an old, new house. Uh, Just before we talk through how you've changed it, can you just run us through a little bit of the history of this massive house that's in Derbyshire what do we know yeah so so there's there's lots and lots to know which I probably can't capture all um in a couple of uh, seconds um but generally we've got um a 17th century mansion um which is part of the children's country house so it was built over 400 years ago by a family called the Vernon family um and when you come on site you can learn all about that history around the Vernons and what they did when they were there and their relationship with the village. Um, But then around 55 years ago, the Vernon family gave um, Sudbury Hall to the National Trust. And the National Trust's role for all of our properties is to make sure that we're looking after the collection, looking after the place, but also helping people know about the stories that are all wrapped within these magnificent places. Um, So yeah, so that's what we've been doing over the past few years. And we opened on um, Saturday, the 22nd of October um, for the first time since since the pandemic. So we've been inviting lots of families um, into our, our new experience. So this is the children's country house now. Uh, now, in fairness, I don't know if many kids would really be that keen to go somewhere that's been designed by a lot of old people. Hey, this is what we know. This is what we think you like. How did you make sure that everything you've built in there is actually something that families and kids want to do? Did you ask any of them? We did. So we worked with lots of children and families to design the Children's Country House at Sudbury. So we had around 100 Children's Country House ambassadors and they were aged between sort of 0 and 12. And they joined us on lots of different, um, in lots of different ways to develop our ideas, to select artists, to pick different ways how they wanted to engage and interact. But we also worked with lots of community groups and also schools as well, where we sort of invited them in um, and they did lots of work alongside us and our curators and our conservators and lots of different experts in that space as well. Hello, my name is Ella and I'm nine years old. The Children's Country House is a brilliant place where every kid can get stuck in and involved. Being an ambassador has meant that I have seen some of the stuff I said should go in there actually come to life. Hello, my name is Lexi and I'm 11 years old. The Children's Country House is a place where children can be the boss when looking around the museum hall and gardens. Being being an ambassador meant I got to help decide what activities would be at the Children's Country House. So at the moment, we've got three zones in um, the mansion part of the Children's Country House. So we've got the Hall of Wonder, we've got the World Below, and we've also got the Mystery Rooms experience. So the, the Hall of Wonder is in all of the kind of big stately rooms. So all of those rooms that kind of make you say, wow, there's lots of um, magnificent sort of plaster work and carvings, like beautiful collection, lots of shiny things and gold and things like that. 
Um, and what we've done in the Hall of Wonder is we've worked really hard to kind of um, make the activities link to the historical uses of those spaces. So with the Long Gallery, for example, um, you can um, interact with the portraits, you can have a look at all of the plaster work, you can also do deportment classes, you can play board games in there and basically just spend a bit of time in there. You can promenade up and down, which is exactly what the um, long galleries were built for. Um, so that's what you can do in the Hall of Wonder. So I won't give lots of spoilers away, but you can basically sort of travel back in time and use those spaces historically how they would have been used. Um, in the world below, you get a little bit of sneak peek on um, how we look after such a, a big property. So you can travel back into the past, you can look at what we do now, and you can also travel into the future and have a look at what you can do to look after a place like Sudbury Hall. Um, and then in the mystery rooms, there it's been designed as an immersive escape room. So you go through that experience and you travel through the smaller family apartment room. So the small dining room, Lord Vernon's um, study, um, and you find lots of clues that are based on our oral histories um, to find out, um, yeah, the missing piece, which again, I won't, I won't spoil. <laughs> How did you deal with trying to make it really exciting and engaging for any sort of kid? Because you might get someone who is really adventurous, but not really bookish, doesn't really care about the history side of things. But then you might get someone who's bang into their history, but doesn't really fancy an escape room, doesn't really want to leg it around solving clues. How did you manage to make it exciting for everyone. So we've worked really hard to kind of layer the experience, if that makes sense. So in every single room, um, the way that we've kind of developed the children's country house is that actually the ownership is sort of on you as an individual to get what you want out of that visit. So there's kind of this layering effect that happens throughout each of the spaces, which means that you can almost sort of choose to delve deeper or choose to not engage at all. Like there's, there's a space where you can sort of dance and twirl around and sort of dress up and I always joke that me and my sisters never would have been doing that but actually there's like a gorgeous library where you can just sit and relax and sit by um, a, a fire and read a book and actually that would have been the space where I would have sort of relaxed so I think there's something quite nice about that experience where every single person not just children can kind of um, own that experience and choose which bits to sort of delve deeper into which bits they want to spend more time in if there's certain spaces where they're just kind of like oh that's really great but I'm going to sort of walk around and and do something different um, and what helps us with that as well is that obviously it, the experience of a day out goes beyond the hall so we've also got the garden and we've got the museum as well which adds more to that kind of layering of a really great day out well I really fancy it just for the mystery room and this is in Derbyshire isn't it which is kind of slap bang in the middle so perfectly fine you can get there from the north or from the very south. It's the Children's Country House at Sudbury Hall. Jodie Lees, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Now, we're off to see Meg and we're getting super crafty and making some clothes. Today, we're going to be fashion designers and dye our own fabric. Humans have been dyeing their clothes different colours since prehistoric times and across the globe, people have used plants to make those colourful colours. In fact, historians believe that cavemen and women used plant dyes to change the colour of animal skins and cave paintings dating back to 15,000 BC, so a long time. 
Historians have also discovered ancient Egyptian plant fibres, which were used to dye clothes. And ancient Britons went as far as to use plant dyes to dye their bodies blue to frighten enemies in battle. But don't worry, I'm not going to be dyeing anyone's smurf colour blue today. Instead, we're going to be using plants to make a unique piece of clothing. This is quite a messy task, so you want to make sure you're wearing gloves, an apron. I've got a nice spotty apron on today. And cover your table with newspaper or a cloth before you start. You're going to need an adult to help you. Um, The dye will work best when the water is still warm, so adult supervision is definitely needed. And I'm going to suggest that you use tongues to protect those little fingers from the hot water. So things that you need, you need your chosen vegetable. I'm going to tell you which ones make different colours in a second. You need a saucepan, a sieve, a pair of tongs and some different bowls. Now I'm going to start by making my favourite colour which is purple and that purple dye is also going to be used to create blue and pink. So first things first, 700 mils of cold water, that's about three cups, goes into my saucepan along with half a red cabbage. Red cabbage is going to make the beautiful purple dye. I'm covering the pan with a lid and I'm bringing it to the boil. Okay, so it started to boil, so I'm going to remove the lid and turn off the heat. Remember, always getting an adult to help you with this task. And then I'm going to let this mixture infuse, which means just let it seep in, get all the nice red, purple colours out of this cabbage. I'm going to do this for about 10 minutes. Now that 10 minutes has gone, I'm going to set a sieve over the bowl and strain the mixture to take all the cabbage out. It's this beautiful, like bright pinky purple colour. I'm going to use tongs to add the thing that I'm dyeing into the mixture while the dye is still warm. Now I'm going to do a tote bag. I've got this kind of very pale coloured tote bag that'll pick up the colour lovely. Now the thing with this is that we are they'll probably wash out a little bit. So I don't wash tote bags very often. Maybe I should do, maybe that's my own error. But I definitely don't wash my tote bags as often as say I wash a t-shirt. So things like that are really good to do. Um, Also, you could make a piece of art as well and then you never have to wash it. So I'm popping my tote bag into the water and you can leave it for as long as you like. I've got one that I did earlier. I left this one overnight and then I've just rinsed out the, the dye until it ran clear under the tap. And as it's dried it's made the most beautiful purpley pink tote bag Um, if you want to make blue then do the same thing with the cabbage just add half a teaspoon of baking powder to the purple dye and you'll see it transform into a blue dye literally before your eyes it's really amazing and to make pink all you have to do is add the juice of half a lemon to the purple dye and it'll turn like more of a reddish pink this is because red cabbage is an indicator of something called ph This means it's really good for showing if something is acidic, like a lemon, or alkaline. And as you add baking powder, it shows up more of the alkaline. And as you add the lemon juice, it shows up more of the acid. So it changes colour, which is super, super cool. Now, there's loads of different foods that you can use to make different colours. I've used a cooked beetroot to make red. That works really, really well. I've used turmeric 
um, it's best to use fresh turmeric, but you can also use powdered turmeric, which you'd put in things like curries. That will make a beautiful yellow colour, which actually stains really well and doesn't wash out too much. Um, there are loads of things you can experiment with. You can use flowers, you can use carrot stems if you get those fancy carrots that have the green stems on, they make a lovely green colour. Um, you can also use sunflower leaves for that gold colour. Just try different things. Dandelion is also really lovely for yellow and you can use the dandelion root to make something called magenta, which is like a really deep, deep kind of pinky red. So lots of different things you can use. I also like to try it with tie-dye. I know we did tie-dye on Activity Quest a few months back where you basically get your tote bag and you tie bobbles all the way up in different places and then when you dip it in the dye, the bits of the bobbles don't get any of the dye in them. Then when you take them off, you get this really cool tie-dye effect. So experiment with different things. I've made two tote bags here, um, which is super, super fun. And how incredible that you've made your own dye just like a caveman or woman. All you need to do is get creative. Remember, there's loads of episodes of Activity Quest that you can go back and listen to at any time. If you're after some more suggestions, just scroll back in your podcast app and pick an episode you fancy. Whatever you do, and however you do it, tell us at funkidslive.com slash activityquest. And remember to rate, review, and follow this podcast wherever it is you're listening to it. I'm Bex, and this has been a podcast from the UK's children's radio station, Fun Kids. It was produced and edited by Adam Stoner, with additional production by Paul Dragunner and Molly Carter, and additional editing by Meg Long. Listen to me on your DAB digital radio, online, on the free Fun Kids mobile app, and on your smart speaker. Just say, play Fun Kids, every weekday from 4pm. See you soon. Um, it's got some amazingly pink and white flowers. The leaves look quite kind of f- like um, kind of furry, you know what I mean? It's a warm spring day in late March, and ever since the leaves have started to come out, Roby Joe has been wondering why some trees lose their leaves and some don't, and also like how the trees know when it's time to shed their leaves. To find out, join us on the conversations, Curious Kids, wherever you get your podcasts.